Revolution I can't get no call to action But I try and I try and I try Hello and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, advertising and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp and I'm Giles Edwards, co-founder and MD. Today, I've caught Paul Feldwick, a big thinker, best-selling author, and the man behind one of my favourite all-time ad campaigns. Paul worked at the legendary agency BMP on some of Britain's most famous brands for over 30 years. Even so, Paul still finds advertising, how it works, and how organisations can make it more effective, both fascinating and frustrating. His latest book, Why Does the Peddler Sing?, explores why selling and entertainment go hand in hand and was described by everyone's favourite Rory as possibly the book I would most highly recommend to anyone in marketing. On Advertising with Logic alone, Paul says it's a bit like trying to make friends with someone by preparing ever more clever things to say about the weather while forgetting to smile. Welcome to the show, Paul. Thank you very much, Giles. Yes, I recognise most of that. (laughs) (laughs) Good stuff. Right, seven quick-fire questions, Paul. Mac or PC? Um, PC, although, I mean, years ago we did have one of the very first Macintoshes, uh, which was a lot of fun, and um, the kids grew up playing playing Shuffle Puck Cafe and uh, Kid Picks on it. (laughs) So, um, yeah, could be be either. (laughs) Could be either. Okay, number two, rational or irrational? Um, Has to be irrational. Mental availability or fame? Uh, Fame. Right, we're getting to my favourite ad territory now. Richard Latham or Johnny English? (laughs) Um, I have a soft spot for Richard Latham. (laughs) Good stuff. The original. Sticking with those ads then, rug or snakebite? Oh, rug. Yeah, or Bedouin birthing blanket, we should probably say. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> two, uh, two more. P.T. Barnum or Elon Musk? Um, P.T. Barnum, although they have a lot in common. Good stuff. And finally, famous clowns, Ronald McDonald or Krusty the Clown? <laughs> um, <laughs> I think Krusty the Clown. Perfect. Okay, brilliant. Uh, Paul, thank you again for joining us. We we always start the show by exploring and often enjoying the sometimes linear and not so linear routes that guests have taken in their careers. So you famously worked at the legendary BMP, as I mentioned in the intro, which then became DDB for 30 years, working on everything from PG tips chimpanzees to the great Rowan Atkinson ads I, I referenced there too, the Sugar Puffs Honey Monster and, and tons more iconic British ads. But what was your first ever job? And then how did that lead to your first proper agency job? Well, I suppose um, BMP was actually my first proper job because um, I went there straight from university. Um, if you want anything before that, it's 
kind of hot picking in the summer or working behind the bar at the fountain New Malden or stuff like that, which um, was interesting, but not very. <laughs> <laughs> was it a very intentional and deliberate move then to go straight into Adland? Well, let, let, let me just say um, it was intentional only in the sense that I thought I must get a job. It's my last year at university and I ought to get a job because I don't know what I'll do otherwise. Although I had vague fantasies of staying at university and doing postgraduate work because I quite liked the collegiate atmosphere. Um, and everybody at that time was applying for advertising. It was very hot in 1974. Um, everybody wanted to work in advertising. It seemed to be intensely competitive. And many of my friends were preparing CVs and sending them off to dozens of agencies and really working hard at it and getting lots of rejections. Um, I rather half-heartedly um, got the address of Bosmasimi Pollock from the Oxford Appointments Bureau, which is the sort of employment agency bit, um, and wrote off to them. Much to my surprise, I got an interview, and then I got another interview. Um, and then Stanley Pollock said, I'm going to proposition you, would you like a job? Um, so I thought, well... Uh, this may not happen again, so I'd better say yes. <laughs> so I did. Um, <clears throat> so I kind of fell into it, like so many people say they do. The interesting thing, perhaps, from the point of view of your question is, um, my first job was I was actually hired as an account manager. Um, and the irony is that not only did I not really want to apply for the job of account planner, because it sounded very sort of technical and nerdy the way they described it. But actually, I wasn't even allowed to because David Cowan at that time would only consider taking on trainees for planning who had A-levels in maths. Uh, and I didn't. Um, so I kind of got in through the back door because I, got, uh, I managed to sell myself somehow to them as, as an account manager. And after about six months... Um, I think they and I had discovered that I was probably the world's worst account manager. <laughs> I was very much literally on the point of being fired. Um, and then some hunch made Stanley say to me, um, I don't think this has been a great success, but perhaps before we get rid of you, perhaps you'd like to try account planning instead. So um, I did. And the extraordinary thing was that I instantly clicked with that job um, and found I could contribute straight away. And, um, well, the rest, I suppose, is history, as they say. It's funny you say that you think you were the world's worst account manager, because actually we've had a few guests claim that title previously, um, who have then subsequently sidestepped into other yeah. roles, whether it was... Well, there's a lot of competition for the title of yeah. world's worst <laughs> account manager, and I've worked with many of them too, but... <laughs> Did you, did you enjoy anything about the role, or was that a silly question? I think I was out of my depth. It didn't really suit my strengths at all, as I'd, I'd kind of imagined to myself that it would, but I didn't really live up to my fantasy. I mean, I think what I enjoyed about it was just, I mean, I loved being in the agency environment, which was still, still a great deal of fun in 1974. Um, you know, I mean, it was it was a whole new world to me, uh, coming from a pretty humble background. That you know, we were able to sort of 
people drove fast cars and uh, had lunch in nice restaurants and it was generally you know all very glamorous and and exciting and um, yeah and I mean I, I was a very callow youth so I was learning a lot even though I was mainly learning from my mistakes yeah which is a good way to learn I think mm. And was the planning then, was the role and was the department quite as nerdy as it, as it once sounded? Um, no, no, not at all. I mean, I hadn't really sort of pictured quite what it was. It just sort of sounded like you needed maths. It was going to be a lot of number crunching. And there were numbers involved. And actually what I discovered, again, to my pleasure, um, was with a little bit of application and hard thought, I discovered that I was basically very numerate and, you know, advanced statistics were not required. But what was required absolutely was the ability to look at a page of numbers and make sense of them. Um, and I discovered I had that and I've always had that. And I am distressed by the fact that actually very many people seem not to have that, honestly, which is um, annoys me yeah. very much. But uh, that was, I guess, one of the things I learned about myself. Um, I mean, at that time, we did have access to lots of data. Um, it was very different from today. We had Nielsen, we had um, panel data, we had all sorts of quantitative data, and we were able to commission quantitative surveys and things. So, I mean, I, I got a very good grounding in the basics of of market research. Uh, I learned about sampling and questionnaire design and all that sort of thing. But we also did a tremendous amount of qualitative research at that time. And it was one of BMP's sort of characteristic things. I think the planners did a huge amount of qualitative research themselves. So part of a plan, a large part of a planner's life was spent driving up and down the M1 to Sheffield or Leeds. Um, you know, doing evening groups with um, with real consumers. Real people. Mm. Who would tell you what they thought of the ads. And there is no better grounding in understanding advertising than sitting regularly in front of rooms full of people, showing them ads or talking about ads with them and understanding how they respond. You know, if they all sit there in stony silence and say, I don't know what all that was about, it's very hard to retain much enthusiasm for it, however much the creative director might think it's wonderful. And conversely, if they all fall about laughing and say, oh, yes, I'd like to see more of that, then you think, well, maybe we're onto something here. Uh, it's not exactly rocket science. Um, but uh, <laughs> No, but sadly, it does need saying, doesn't good it? grounding for, 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 for working in advertising. Uh, you said it was a good grounding, but equally, there's no better measure really than either. And, and as uh, to your point, it's 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 not rocket science, and yet you would believe it was rocket science the way that some of the you know the work gets done and the way that agencies operate nowadays. I, in my experience, at least, we the amount of times people skip even the most basic research processes is is quite alarming. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. And and presumably then, did you, from travelling up and down the M1 so frequently and talking to real people, is that where you started to observe or appreciate the link between groups of people, communities, cultures and advertising? It's an interesting thing. And I mean, I reflect on it in Why Does the Peddler Sing? 
But I think um, at one level, it was very, very clear to us all working at BNP that there were very, very powerful connections between being entertaining in advertising and being effective. But the interesting thing was that we didn't talk about that very much. And I don't think we really had a theory of why it was important or, or how it fitted. Um, so we were kind of in this situation of doing one thing, but talking as if we were doing another. So we would still talk as if it was about communicating a proposition or a message or a strategy or something very abstract like that. Um, and yet we also behaved in practice um, on the basis that, you know, if people were going to like it and it was going to be popular, <laughs> um, then, you know, it was going to be a good ad. And if people didn't like it, it probably wasn't going to be a good ad. We didn't believe you could bore people. I suppose the closest we came to formulating it, and again, I've, I've quoted this before or paraphrased Martin Bowes before, but Martin Bowes, of course, the, the B of Bowes, Massimi Pollitt, um, he used to say something to us quite often, like, we believe at this agency that if you're going to invite yourself into somebody's living room for 30 seconds, um, then you have a sort of moral duty not to shout at them or bore them mm. or insult them. Um, but if you put a smile on their faces, if you entertain them, uh, or, or at least tell them something that's interesting to them, if you're a charming guest, then they might like you a bit more. And if they like you a bit more, they might be more inclined to buy your brand. And mm. that didn't really fit with any of the conventional theories of advertising that were embodied in the way advertising was briefed or the way advertising was researched uh, or any of the sort of the, the, the theory that one came across insofar as it existed, which was all about, you know, you have to communicate the, the consumer benefit or whatever it is. Um, and yet I think it was incredibly profound. And I mean, I've, I suppose both my books have been in a way sort of lengthy reflections on on that point of view as expressed by Martin um, because I think it is that you know at, at, at bottom advertising that builds brands does so not so much by communicating rational benefits although that may come into it but at a much more fundamental level it works by creating relationships and through creating relationships it, it also creates fame and i think both those things are, are the sort of the central concepts that we both need that we need to work on in, in order to understand how to build and how to maintain brands um, mm -hmm. and i think more and more people are beginning to realize that or other people have come to very similar conclusions uh through their own um reflections i mean bob hoffman who you mentioned earlier um, when we were speaking just before we started um, is one, for example, and he, he's, he's beautifully articulate about this and much more pithy sometimes than, than I usually <laughs> am. Um, so, I, and, and, and I think people like Orlando Wood at System One, of course, are, are coming to those conclusions and, and Byron Sharp and, and uh, Ehrenberg Bass people have for a long time been saying, you know, all advertising really does is it raises mental availability. Um, and I think yeah. that's a very, a very closely allied concept. So I think 
more and more people are beginning to see this and it's actually quite hard to argue with when it comes down to it you know the biggest brands tend to be the most famous brands it's quite hard to find exceptions to that as a general rule uh, yeah and there are many ways of creating fame um, but one one way of creating fame is through advertising in the sense of particularly using paid media um, and you know that's because one of the essential ingredients for creating fame is that you have to reach very large numbers of people and make them make them interested in what you have to show you know it's no good being a wonderful ad or a wonderful singer or a wonderful movie or a wonderful anything else if it only ever goes to a relatively small number of people it has to be exposed uh, on a massive basis um, that's the principle on which show business has always worked and even more so today works uh, with the concept of the, the, the blockbuster and the, and the big bet um, and um, you know you you have to go out there and, and be known to lots of people uh, it is a numbers mm. game at the end of the day a couple of weeks ago in um, Bob Hoffman's newsletter, there was a beautiful line which you mentioned he's quite pithy and you're absolutely right. And he said that it's hard to get famous in private. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Which that just reminded yeah. me of. But equally, going back, I mean, you made so many good points there, but going back to your quote about Martin and, you know, coming into people's living rooms, there's a there's a Disney quote and I'm probably going to I'm probably going to get it wrong. But the essence of it was Disney would rather try to entertain people and hope the audience learn something than the other way around. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Disney's a phenomenon. Um, I, I don't really have much to say about Disney in my books, but I could have done. And if I write another one, I may well do. I think the whole history of Disney and right up to the present day as an organisation um, is, is sort of remarkably demonstrates the connections between... Um, between entertainment and commerce. And of course, there are many ways in which those two things are linked. Um, the obvious, one obvious one in a way being that entertainment itself is a business. You know, it is a product that is being sold. So the first thing that you want to do if you come up with a movie is you want to make that movie a financial success. But then there are plenty of other ways that you can build on that and make it into much more of a success. Disney was a great pioneer of that because right from his very first animated full-length feature, a thing that had never been done before, which was Snow White back in the 30s, um, even before that film came out, he had in his mind perfectly clear the extent to which he was going to sell merchandise based around that movie. So, you know, all sorts of things, the Snow White dolls and the Seven, the seven Dwarfs and the, and the games and the books and the, the gramophone records and everything else, all of that uh, is not just a, a way of helping to monetize the movie, although it does that very successfully, but it also spreads the fame of that movie and it also enables the public to engage with that movie and own something that is a part of it, interact with it. You know, you do not just passively sit and watch, uh, watch Snow White, the movie, once in a while when you go to the cinema, which in those days was all you could ever do, you actually, your children have all the Snow White toys and the Snow White dolls to play with at home on an ongoing basis. And their friends will see them um, and they'll talk about them between them. And that's how, I mean, it's obvious when you think about it, but 
I don't think people in advertising sort of articulate this very much because their discourse tends to be on a completely different plane. It's totally dominated by a long history of, you know, stuff about um, consumer benefits and sales messages and rational persuasion, um, which, which is important in certain aspects of advertising, but is actually not what building a great brand or a great franchise like Disney or, or James Bond, um, you know, is really about at all. No, and testament to the success of, of Disney, as you know, uh, I believe I took our two young daughters, or we took our two young daughters to see Frozen, the musical, three or four days ago. And I know that, you know, commercially, what that <laughs> what that bloody took, um, what those tickets cost. But equally, in testament to, to Snow White, Snow White happens to be one of their favourite Disney films as well. And the, the, two, the two kind of franchises of Snow White and Frozen are coming up to a hundred year gap between the that, two. That is extraordinary, isn't it? But I mean, you know, one of Disney's skills has always been knowing how to work that back catalogue. Um, and, uh, you know, that has just evolved over the decades as the technology has evolved. I mean, I can remember when, um, I mean, before DVDs, when, when video cassettes were relatively new, Disney... Uh, you know, were very, very skillful at bringing out films from their back catalogue onto video cassette, and they'd only do one or two a year, so that every year, you know, and they'd not been available before. I mean, one has to think this is not very, so very long ago, but you know, we have to remind ourselves today that there was a time when you know things were not all instantly universally available via streaming or whatever that. Um, I mean, prior to the invention of the domestic video uh, cassette player, which only really becomes a thing, I suppose, in the the eighties. Um, uh, prior to that, if you wanted to see a film like Snow White, there was only one way you could see it: you'd have to go to a mm. cinema that was showing Snow White, and that was unlikely to be happening. Um, so, the invention of the uh, of the video cassette was an enormous opportunity for Disney to sort of reinvent their whole back catalogue. And they did it in a, in a brilliant way because uh, this is the era when my sons were growing up. And every year it was like one or two new ones would come on stream. One year it would be Pinocchio, one year it would be Dumbo, one year it would be Sleeping Beauty. Um, they'd be re-released in the cinema, but they'd also come out um, on, on the video cassette. And we'd buy them as they came out and sort of collect them almost. Uh, so, I mean, the more you think about Disney, the more you think they've, I mean, they've put a foot wrong once or twice historically, but on the whole, that organisation has a brilliant record of, um, you know, using its assets and its history. Um, and I think there's a, there's a moral there for brands as well, um, because, you know, a lot of famous brands are very old and they have equally long histories, Disney, of course, being a brand in itself. Um, but it, it also shows you that it's the importance of the assets that you've had in the past that you can go on reusing and reusing and reusing as long as you find ways to make them new and keep them fresh. Um, you know, um, Disney did not kind of go, oh, Snow White, nobody wants to see that anymore or that's just a purely historical <laughs> in, 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 interest. They would say, you know, Snow White is 
is as good a product as anything we've done and it's as relevant today as anything we've done um, mm. and and they will continue to use it and everything you know as you say snow white to frozen and everything in between yeah no very good very good points absolutely you, you mentioned um, you mentioned there I think you said that people today in our industry are perhaps not very good at articulating that link between entertainment and fame building and, and brand and advertising. I wonder how much is it that versus how much is it that it's not very easy to talk about it or demonstrate because I have to sometimes stop myself from quoting the great Jeremy Bullmore because I'll do it all day if you let me. But he he wrote in his wonderful posh spice and personal talk in 2001 I don't know why I don't know why it is I only know that it is when referencing fame and some of the things that go into brand and success you know Jeremy was one of those people who not only says things sort of with much more economy than I ever could but I generally found said, said them a long time earlier than I did as well um, but you know people he, he was a pioneer in that sense. Posh Spice and Purcell is 20 years old now. Um, but I don't know, you know, how people really responded to that, to that uh, talk when it came out. I think Jeremy had this wonderful way, or s still does, I hope, have this wonderful way of, of sort of saying things that are sort of interesting, provocative. Oh, I never thought of it like that. Um, <laughs> but are often sort of, they're so new to people that I think they just kind of go, hmm, that's interesting, but that's a sort of slightly whimsical point of view. It's not really telling me how to do my job. Actually, I mean, what he's saying in Posh Spice and Persil is absolutely rock solid, um, how to do your job. It says, you know, if you want to be a successful brand, the most important thing is to make your brand famous. And, you know, my 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 recent book is 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 partly about why is that so but also it's it's a lot about why does that seem on the one hand an obvious thought but also it's not a thought that has been really articulated through the history of advertising and part of the story behind that it's 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 a long and i think fascinating story is that right from the very early days of advertising agencies as we would recognize them, and I date it specifically from about 1900, um, there was this great move to professionalization in advertising. And advertising agencies wanted above all to distance themselves from the sort of 19th century world of P.T. Barnum and the traveling medicine show um, and, and all the bad practices that went along with that, um, you know, and they they didn't want to be seen as hucksters or traveling entertainers. They literally wanted to be seen as professionals like doctors or lawyers, someone like, you know, um, uh, Calkins, for example, um, you know, great copywriter of the early 20th century, literally wrote a lot about how he aspired to um, to, to, to teach advertising as if it were a, a profession like like doctors or lawyers. Um, and so they, they distanced themselves from that history. And it's sort of understandable why they did. But it was also, I think, set them off in a sort of bizarrely um, strange and different direction. 
from what their real antecedents were. And I think it's that, that refusal to acknowledge that advertising has its roots, you know, in, 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 in a very sort of, you know, popular culture, if you like, um, and, and, and to pretend that it's this somehow this much higher calling of selling through rational persuasion. Um, and that has been reinvented by generation after generation of advertising practitioners. Um, and it's, it's led us into some weird places. And I think it's, um, you know, it, it's been a huge distraction and a huge confusion. Um, again, I mean, it's a long story and I've, I've tried to sort of tell the story um, in Why Does the Peddler Sing? So I, I do urge anyone who's intrigued by what I'm trying to say here to go, to go and read it. It would, take me, it would take me far too long to go through that whole story as we're talking this afternoon. But, you know, it's not just that today's advertising people have odd ideas about advertising. There's a, there's a whole history going back 120 years of um, advertising agencies trying to pretend they're doing one thing, even when they were actually, in many cases, very good at doing something completely different. I mentioned on a, a recent episode, in fact, that I've got a lot of friends who work in the kind of more arts and culture type industries. And I'm sure most of them think I sit in a room nowadays and just press different buttons that all say evil on them, such as the reputation of advertising and the intrusive nature of the, all the data capture. But maybe we do need to go back more to the day of, of, of peddlers singing and more clown-like approach to our craft. Yes, I mean... I think at the end of the day, that, that raises a number of big, big complicated questions about the morality of, of what we do, which is always a, an old chestnut and to which there is never an entirely satisfactory answer. Um, although the reality is that, you know, it's, it's a potentially powerful tool that can be used in the service of things that may be good may be less good, may even be evil. Um, so, you know, it is in that sense, it's kind, of, it's kind of morally neutral. But I think there is also, and I go back to Martin Bose's quote here, that his view about why you should make advertising entertaining was not just that it will work, but also that there was a kind of ethical point behind it. That, and I think it bears repeating that if you are going to inflict lots of advertising on people and your goal is to put it in front of them as much as possible, um, I think there is not just a practical argument, but there's also an ethical argument that says, let's try and produce something that gives them some kind of pleasure or satisfaction so that that experience for them is not an entirely awful one. And today it is very often a pretty awful one. <laughs> You know, when advertising is only interested in being interruptive, being hard to avoid, being in your face, um, it doesn't create a relationship that makes you want to buy that brand. Um, and also, I think, I mean, another huge red herring, which, again, I don't want to go down that wormhole today, and others have said a lot about it, the whole stuff about purpose today. But I think if advertising agencies really wanted to say we have a purpose and we have a sort of ethical purpose, they could start uh, pretty close to home by saying our ethical purpose in agencies 
is not to irritate the hell out of people, but perhaps to put a smile on their faces. Um, and that is not an easy thing to do, but it's possible to do. It's certainly possible to aspire to doing it. Um, mm. If you look back over um, the last 50 years, um, you can trace, and there is data that shows that up to and peaking in 1991, there's some evidence that people were more and more inclined to think that advertising might be better than the programmes, as, as it was put, you know, it was quite entertaining. That actually peaks in 1991 and it starts to decline and it declines through the 90s and it's declined ever since. Um, and there's some other data that I was reading just recently that shows that in the last 20 years, the number of people saying advertising is basically very, very annoying has gone up a lot in the last 20 years too. So at least totally consistent. Um, I think what we're seeing is not only have agencies sort of stopped thinking it important that the public should enjoy their advertising, but actually they are in serious danger of forgetting how to do it. Um, even, even when they say they want to do it now, they, they sort of fail. And I guess this takes me right back to my my early trips up up the M1, <laughs> um, you know that, uh, that literally uh, that, that there is there is no better touchstone than um, you know find some real people if you can nowadays whatever that involves and in many ways it might be much easier because I imagine you could do a great deal of it online even if not all of it um, and genuinely ask them what they think of your ads uh, and genuinely listen. Um, and don't then dismiss them as, oh, just an ignorant bunch of oiks or housewives who don't appreciate good advertising, because mm. those are actually the people that you're trying to appeal to. Ask yourself why Mrs. Brown's Boys is the best-selling Christmas DVD, you know, mm. even though probably everyone who works in advertising thinks it's the most god-awful trash and politically incorrect <laughs> to boot. Um, you know, there is a real world out there, outside the charmed village of, of advertising, um, where people are still sort of enjoying a good laugh at some basically pretty traditional um, types, types, types of entertainment. Um, and if those are done well, then they become successful. Middle England, as Steve Harrison referred to it as, you're absolutely right. I certainly encourage everybody listening to go out and buy and read Why Does the Peddler Sing, even if they've already bought and read it already, because it's wonderful. We will link to that in this episode too, Paul. Um, I'm mindful of time because we've got quite a few listener questions to get through um, and I can see the time creeping already. So can I put a couple of my listener questions to you? Please do. So asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger. But we've got... We've actually got three, but I'm going to sneak one into our final poses. So question one is from Jake Sanders, a.k.a. POS Marketer on Twitter. And Jake asks, why is creative thinking in advertising considered, quote, unserious? And how do we reverse this? Also, do you have any tips on overcoming shame to get fame? So I guess he's anticipating part of the answer there. Overcoming shame. Yeah. I think I can sort of see what he's getting at there. Um, I mean, I think there's a 
the, the, the word creative and the words creativity, I think, have become very loaded in very strange ways. Um, I mean, the word creativity didn't really exist until about the 1960s. In fact, as David Ogilvy pointed out, even as late as the 1980s, you couldn't find it in the Oxford English Dictionary. Um, so it's a bit of a, a sort of neologism. And I think it only started to be bandied around in advertising around the time of um, sort of Bill Birnbach's rise to fame and, and the, the other agencies that followed on in the wake of Bill Birnbach, the paper Koenig, Lewis, and Carl Alley, and, and then, you know, and so on. Um, and I think that, that there's a really interesting thing happened in advertising about that point which was where the advertising industry started to conceive of a, a kind of creativity that was cool, you know, and mm. it sort of, it suddenly thought, you know, oh, we don't have to do that crap old advertising anymore, even though that crap old advertising was actually, in, in many cases, was what was popular, was what the public liked, and was what built the big brands. No, they wanted to do cool, hip stuff that was going to appeal to their friends in Manhattan or, or San Francisco or whatever. And, um, and so that was where creativity in advertising started to mean not just what will be popular and entertaining, um, but, you know, what will be acceptable within the advertising community. And I, I think that... What people are ashamed of now in advertising is doing stuff that is popular. Um, and that's a terrible place to be. Um, John Webster was never ashamed of being popular. I mean, this is, of course, the great creative director at BMP, who was, I mean, not, not the only great creative person that we had there, but responsible for a, a great many of BMP's most famous campaigns. And John Webster was a, a kind of, a fairly modest man from a fairly ordinary background who was genuinely motivated by producing work that was popular. He wanted work that people were going to talk about in the pub, talk about in the playground, talk about in the supermarket. Um, he didn't sort of, he didn't hobnob that much with the advertising village, but he had a bunch of um, really close friends who were nothing to do with advertising, who he'd go and sort of spend Friday nights with each week in the pub. And I think they were his sort of touchstone for the real world, if you like. Um, and of course, he, he, he made active use of the qualitative research that we were doing. Um, unlike most creative people, he didn't see that as a threat. He absolutely welcomed it. Um, and that's because his motivation was he wanted to produce popular work. Now, if you don't want to produce popular work, I think you're in a very strange position right from the start if your job is writing advertising. And I knew it had started to go wrong when somebody reported a conversation they had um, with the creative director at what was then BMPDDB, probably sometime in the early 2000s, um, when he said, oh, well, you know, that stuff that Webster did, it was all very well in its day. But it was all a bit populist, wasn't it? I mean, <laughs> if people in advertising take that attitude, and I think, to be honest, far too many of them do, you mm. know, their idea of a good film is, oh, we'll get this really good director 
and you know we'll 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 make it look like a Wes Anderson movie, and you know this is a rather. Occasionally, it's interesting. Uh, to be honest, most of the time it's extremely boring. But even when it's interesting, it's not popular <laughs> um, because they, they 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 lack all the skills that are required to produce popular work. Um, so I think, um, yeah, the shame and fame—an interesting sort of choice of words there. Um, mm. Of course, if you are totally without shame. Um, you can be, I suppose, ultimately a bit of a psychopath. But I think the thing that people in advertising agencies ought to be ashamed of is betraying their clients by producing work that is not effective. And they ought to be ashamed of being out of touch with the public that they're trying to appeal to. Um, and that's where the shame ought to be placed. That's a great answer. I think one of the victims of that want to be cool and create cool work, maybe by friendly fire, is just the good honest jingle, <laughs> which we're in the process of building one for our client right now. And it feels it feels almost like we're cheating. Yeah. Because it's just so obvious. And yet I think maybe that's yeah. an area where for some reason shame is attached. Question two then, Paul, is from Will Poskett. Now, Will's added quite a bit of context before he gets to the question. So let me just uh, race through this. We know from the brilliant work of Binet and Field that fame is the best driver of long-term brand growth. Other studies also indicate that likability is a good driver of success too. Yet too often I have seen brands try to boost the latter, liking, and the determinant of the former, fame. I have seen clients round off the edges, make something nice, but with less fame potential. So my question would be, given the choice, would you rather have an ad that is famous and divisive or something likable but less fame-worthy? Um, yeah, there's sort of kind of debate that is sort of in danger of, I can again, I can sort of see where he's coming from, but we can end up sort of in one of those sort of scholastic discussions where, you know, one has to sort of argue about the meaning of every word in that formula before we can, mm. before we can have the conversation. Um, it's worth saying, for example, that um, I admire Les and Peter's work very much and I lean on it tremendously to sort of give some substance to what I'm saying as well. So we're, we're, we're very substantially in agreement. It's worth saying that I think they use the word fame in a slightly different sense from the way I use it. I use it in a fairly sort of broad general sense. I think they use it in a rather more specific sense because they, they kind of operationalize it as a particular characteristic of certain campaigns. What they mean by it is a campaign that is talked about that gets a lot of buzz, that gets a lot of word of mouth. And they point out, I think, not surprisingly and quite rightly, that campaigns that achieve that are more successful than those that don't. Now, for me, um, the ability of anything to be talked about and shared, is a, it's a kind of a measure of fame, but it's only one aspect of fame. Um, I mean, it, it is an essential aspect of fame in the sense that, you know, one, you don't become famous unless people are prepared to talk about you and share. Um, or there's a different level of fame if it's simply known to lots of people that they're just absorbing it passively. 
Um, so being talked about, being shared is really important. Um, being argued about may well be an aspect of that. So I think to be to be divisive and to be controversial is not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, mm. in each case, you have to take some judgment sometimes as to whether it's going to tip over into being, um, you know, alienating too many people um, or creating other problems that you don't want to live with. But on the whole, it's good, you know. But, and even when people really, really dislike you, um, you will you will maintain your fame um, if you do the other things that are necessary to maintaining fame. So, you know, I mean, one keeps sort of coming back to the dreadful figure of Donald Trump in this, um, which <laughs> makes my point that, you know, fame, fame is morally neutral. <laughs> but of course, yeah. we also need to remember that about half the population of the United States think Donald Trump is a jolly fine guy and would make a jolly fine president again. Um, so, you know, let's not be totally um, confined by our metropolitan, <laughs> our metropolitan yes. bubble view of, of the reality. Um, but, I mean, if you take Trump as an example, um, he has, you know, he's a polarizing guy, extremely polarizing guy. But actually, his opponents do as much to maintain his fame uh, and therefore his power as his supporters mm. do. And fame is a source of power. I mean, it's not innocent. I suppose, you know, I, I, I don't really go into these sort of moral debates, but uh, fame is potentially, um, fame is a source of power that can be used for good or ill. So, I mean, simply saying, let's have a lot of fame and it'll all be wonderful is not necessarily going to save the world. But it is saying, actually, you know, if you want to have power in the world, if you want to have power to change things in the world, um, without fame, you're not going to be able to do it. Um, so uh, I don't know if that's answered the question, but I think what I'm saying, the drift of it is, I think I'd rather be talked about than not talked about. And I think <laughs> likability is a slightly woolly thing that, um, you know, uh, could be could be dangerous if you start taking it too literally. Yeah, well, I'm certainly very happy with that answer because in the rare instances that people ask me to deliver one of my long rambling talks that I do, I have a slide of a parachute where I claim that advertising should be more like parachutes in as much as they work or they don't work. Nobody likes a parachute. <laughs> um, but of course, some people do disagree with that. I think the real danger is indifference. I'd rather someone liked or hated it. Yeah. But I think you've, you, you know, you've added a lot more context there than I think I ever have. So thank you. So the final part of the interview is our four pertinent poses that we put to every guest. Starting with, what advice would you give to your younger self? My younger self? Um, I'd actually say, you know, uh, hang on in there and um, enjoy it. Because, you know, you may be amazed to know that you'll still be interested in this stuff in 40 or 50 years time <laughs> excellent uh number two so we normally i'm going to switch number two's question to a question that actually came from the listener question from call to action alumni the brilliant ad therapist Gillian Wrightford, because she said if you could wave a magic wand and change one thing about the industry as it is today what would it be and why i would probably get rid of most of the people we work in creative departments and replace them with somebody else. 
Are we allowed a quick why? <laughs> or can we guess? Because I think with the best will in the world, they have all been so conditioned that they are unable to think outside the narrow tram lines of thinking like each other, of thinking that a good ad is one that wins awards, of believing all the sort of shite that's been peddled for 30 years by people like the Watford Ad School. Um, you know, I think they're a lost cause. Um, I think you would do much better to get rid of all of them and get people who um, who come from a background in uh, something like entertainment. Yes, amazing. I'm pleased I pissed you on that one. Uh, number three, are there any books that you would recommend? And we will, of course, recommend and link to both The Anatomy of Humbug and Why Does the Peddler Sing? But can you recommend any other books to our listeners? Oh, wow. I mean, everybody must of course read why brands grow and jenny romaniuk's book on distinctive brand assets i mean they're quite dry and technical um but they're solid and they're really important um and i think i see my books as very complementary to those i'm not sure whether byron or jenny do but i <laughs> i see my work as very complementary to theirs um, I think anything on the history of advertising is worth reading. I mean, there's lots and lots of stuff. Um, reading histories of advertising is always enlightening. Um, and I won't sort of proliferate titles on that. Um, yeah, I think that's about it. But rather than fob you, fob you off with a long reading list. Um, well, if you think of any more, do email them over and I'll get them added to this list because they'll all be linked to from the um, from the episode. We have, funny enough, we had Jenny Romanek on a few months ago and she was absolutely wonderful talking about distinctive brand assets I and bet, yeah. everything um, around and in between. So that was wonderful. Number four then, Paul, is we always dedicate every episode to somebody and we bestow or hospital pass that honour depending on your view to our guest who has to give their reason why. So would you kindly dedicate this episode? Can it be somebody living or dead? Either, absolutely. Um, I think, um, I mean, out of, a, out of a number of possible candidates, um, I think I'd like to dedicate this episode to Martin Bowes, actually. And I could have included Stanley and probably would include Stanley if I could include two. But, I mean, Martin is still around to enjoy it if he ever hears about it. Um, and also, I've talked about him so much in this interview. And I think, you know, not just in terms of what he said, but more importantly, in terms of the advertising that his agency produced, um, I think he's been such an inspiration to me, quite apart from the fact that he was instrumental in giving me a job and was a fantastic employer for 30 years that I was I was there. So, uh, yes, I'd like to dedicate it to Martin Bowes. Wonderful. Well, that's a fantastic recommendation. This episode is very proudly dedicated to Martin Bowes. Thank you, Paul. As a final call to action, everyone can head over to the listing where we've got links pointing to Anatomy of Humbug, Why Does the Peddler Sing, How Brands Grow, uh, Measuring Distinctive Brand Assets from Jenny Romanek. How else can our listeners get more Paul Feldwick? I don't know, actually. Um, I mean, I would mention <laughs> that even if you've got the, the, the books are also both available as audio books. 
Um, so if, and I mean, I, I, I may well be writing another one. I mean, I'm not traveling at the moment. I'm not, I may, I may well produce another book. Um, I do have a website. Uh, if you can be bothered to find it, there are lots of links to things I've done, um, bits of video and articles I've written. So, um, paulfeldrick.com, uh, you know, contains, contains quite a lot of back catalogue if you, if you want to search it out. And otherwise, I'm sort of quite active at the moment, um, writing the occasional piece, which I generally post on LinkedIn just because it's convenient. And quite interest, some quite interesting discussions go on there about advertising at the moment. So, um, Perfect. For our maps, Perfect. Well, we will include the link to your website. We'll also throw in, um, there's, there's countless YouTube reels showing my favourite ads, which of course are the Barclay Card ads that you did with Rowan Atkinson. Um, so we'll link to all of those as well so everyone can enjoy that. Um, so Paul, thank you for joining us. I've stolen more time from you than I agreed to, so apologies for that, but it has been entirely my, my pleasure um, and an absolute privilege yeah. to talk. Finally, thank you to everybody listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do share and review the podcast. Keep the guest requests and questions coming in. To get in touch, it's easy to find GASP online. You can check out CTA pod on Instagram or just email hello at calltoaction.co. Yeah!